keep me honest. I'd like to say good morning again, and uh, to say first in terms of appreciations, I really can't wait to return to Westchester and note to the board that you have air conditioning in your meeting room. <laughs> uh, there is just something very sweet about that. that uh, they're meeting there right now, and I'm also taking a little bit of guilty pleasure thinking about that too. I'm so happy to be back, and I'm so gratified to see all of you out here on a, a Sunday morning in the middle of summer when it's so nice outside. And uh, I guess the pressure's on uh, to, to try to, to, to live up to you uh, putting time aside to be here, and I'll, I'll do what I can to honor that pressure. So let me first say, to my mind, ethical culture is about performance. Right? Look at the, the, the models that we live by, deed before creed, uh, elicit the best from others. I mean, these are action statements, right? These are about getting out there and doing things. We're, we're a, a movement that is meant to be doing and making things happen. We're performance-oriented. And performance-oriented in terms of how do we find ways to elicit the best in others and somehow realize the worth and dignity of everyone. No small task. But still, we're there for the performance as a community, right? as a group of people coming together with common, uh, common aims, and also as individuals. Right? When we wake up in the morning and we get a start to our day, my guess is all of us are at least at some point thinking, I want to at least put my best foot forward. I want to make some good thing happen today. Right? I mean, we're, we're people of, of good faith in that way. And so I'd like to start out with five questions that have to do with us and how we're doing performance-wise. And uh, these questions actually come from uh, a, a website that I found called Seminar Soterica, uh, and they're posted by a, a, a psychologist named John P. Demand. And here they are. Question one. Describe something you would like to accomplish that would make you feel really good about yourself. Two, what would you have to think of yourself to accomplish your goal? Three, what emotions, feelings would you have to change to achieve the above goal? Four, how will you have to act to make the goal above come true, and five, and here's the kicker, ask yourself, what has kept me from thinking, feeling, and acting in these ways up to this point in my life? Now, I ask these questions now, I'm actually going to ask them again at the end, but I'm hoping in between times to fill in a little bit about some of the opportunities and some of the challenges that we face when we look inward and try to connect with ourselves and try to establish a sense of positive regard for who we are, what we can do, and how we live. Now the first thing is, this is not such an easy task, right? Um, I found a quote from uh, Thoreau. It says, it's as hard to see oneself as to look backwards without turning around. Right. 
what happens for us is we grow up in a context. First of all, we inherit all this stuff, right? Think about how much of our personalities we kind of got through some kind of gene thing um, so that we already arrive in the world ready to do some things more than other things and, you know, that kind of thing. And then we grow up in a family, and the family has their own ideas about this as well, right? And then as we're old enough to go out and venture forth, we, we have a whole community, and that community was inheriting all kinds of stuff from the communities before them, all right? So when it comes right down to it, when you look at yourself as one small individual in this large sea of culturally evolving styles, the challenge of knowing who you are in distinction from who anybody else is is a great one. Not only that, one of the ways that we respond to the world that we live in is we start developing all kinds of habits, right? We have habits of basic skills, you know, I mean, knowing how to dress yourself and all those kind of things, certainly. Habits of thought, right? We start thinking in characteristic ways, habits of feelings and attitudes. And some of those habits are the things that are public that are there for everyone to see. And some of those habits are the ones that we carry inside that may or may not be something that other people are aware of. But they're habits nonetheless, because these are the kind of things we do over and over again. They're kind of characteristic responses to events and ideas and things. Okay? And we carry these with us. And they become kind of a substantial part of our personalities. So the challenge of figuring out our own particular personality can be a big one. And trying to get through that can be sometimes a little frustrating. But there are some cues that we can take to kind of get some handle on how we think about ourselves. So I'd like you to do a quick exercise now. And you don't, this is not that I'm going to ask you questions um, or to tell me things. But I'd like you to think about a recent frustrating experience you had. Think of a time recently when you felt really frustrated. About that. Find one. Find one. You know, maybe it's motor vehicles. I don't know. Something had to frustrate you recently. All right? And think about what happened. And now think about what did you say to yourself when you were so frustrated? What did you say to yourself? What did you say to yourself about the situation? What did you say to yourself about your performance? What did you say to yourself about your personality? in relation to this frustrating event. I ask this again because it's difficult to look inside. Um, You know, I started working on this topic after having two different experiences in one day that just got got my mind going. The first was we were having a colloquy meeting at the Ethical Society. You guys have colloquy here? Um, For us, it's this nice time where it's a relatively smallish gathering and we have uh, readings and music, and we just do this nice sharing about a topic. And it's really very pleasant for us. And we've been doing it a while, and we have the regulars that come out. And one of the regulars is a woman who's a number of years older than me that I've known for a long time as someone who is just unswaveringly positive and pleasant and energized and just lovely, just a great human being. Somebody you really want to invite over and do things with. And she's always doing interesting things. Uh, Even when she has hard times in her life, she still finds some good, interesting things to talk about in the midst of it. You know this kind of person, right? Very positive. 
And yet, she started talking about some of the internal dialogue that she has as she goes through her life. I was quite surprised at how self-critical her statements about this were. You know, ah, oh, you should have done more than that. Or, you know, that wasn't the right thing to say. You could have said this. All this second-guessing, all this going back over things, ruminating a bit, worrying over it. From the outside, glorious, beautiful, wonderful, on the inside, tumultuous and strained. Who would have thought it? And I, I felt immediately sympathetic. I mean, I got my own rap going on, certainly. But I also felt surprised and wondered, you know, this person's been so successful at life, to my mind, and yet here's this difficult rap. So later in the day, my wife and I were invited out to dinner at her cousin's place. And her cousin is an inventor collector of old newspapers. Uh, much to his wife's chagrin, uh, he has, uh, I'm sure, stacks and stacks from all the important years going up from 1928 on. And um, <laughs> maybe earlier, it could be earlier, I don't know. But one of the nice things about him is he likes to save things when he finally gets to them that he thinks people will like. And so he saved something for my, my wife and I having to do with a teacher who was really frustrated about her students. And this is a college teacher. And in the article, she's saying, well, you know, these students, they turn in the most miserable dreck for their assignments. And they do such terrible jobs on, uh, like narratives on their tests and things. It's just abysmal. And the worst ones will invariably come in and then start challenging the grade. And they'll say, well, it was really pretty good, wasn't it? And, 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 and the professor would go through, well, okay, here's a test that had five points that you needed to answer. And you didn't answer any of them. And they said, but I was close, right? You know, I almost got it. It should be worth something. Um, and just ongoing frustration. It reminds me, uh, do you guys watch American Idol? How many do? Come on. This is, oh, shoot. All right, never mind. <laughs> hey, we live up in the burbs, you know. This is what, this is what we do. Uh, I've seen it once or twice <laughs> for a few seasons. Anyway. One of the, the moments that I find incredibly frustrating is when, and you wouldn't know about this, but what happens is people sing, and after they finish singing, there's three judges, who you probably wouldn't know about either, but these three judges then give a critique of the performance. And oftentimes, the performance are mind-blowingly good. I mean, these are people that are sorted out of hundreds of thousands of uh, people who've tried out, and so you can imagine that you've got a lot of talent up there. But every so often, you'll just get one that's really off, you know? And the judges see this, and so they start complaining. You know, oh, I don't know, dog. You know, I think this one just wasn't the right song choice for you. Or, you know, oh, it's very pitchy, you know, or, or whatever. You know, they start going on about it. The response to the performers always intrigues me. They say, well, I had fun, as if this was an answer to these criticisms. No ability, it seems, to take in the notion that what they had just done was anything short of excellence. Right? Nothing short of excellence. It had to be perfect. And they'll even bring their cronies in. Your friends will come with signs saying, I had fun, you know, or whatever. Um, there is this sense that I get that there's a brittleness almost about experience where you can only take in the props and you can't take in the criticism. And what about that? These are people who are performing at the highest level. Wouldn't you think that being unable to accept criticism would somehow impair that? And yet there they are. 
I find it a puzzle. Um, in preparation for the address, I uh, did read a book that I recommend uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, people probably know him from The Tipping Point or uh, a couple other books, but the one I read was uh, um, Outliers. And Outliers is a book about people who are um, uncommonly excellent performers, people who are extraordinarily successful, and then takes a look back at those people's lives in the context of their success to get some understanding of what's the relationship between individual excellence and the supports and situations that are available to people that kind of might support that excellence in that way. Really interesting book. Well, one of the things that he holds is that in this country in particular, we've really got this little love affair going on with intelligence and brilliance. Um, and he gives the example of a fellow named uh, Chris Logan. And Chris Logan has an IQ of somewhere north of 190. Right? I don't know if any of you guys are in that ballpark or not. I know I, I'm a few points shy. And he is just incredibly brilliant. And the way he comes in contact with him first is he's on a, uh, one of those game shows, you know, how to win a million dollars kind of thing, where he's going up against 100 uh, so-called average citizens. And so they all get the same questions. And if he outperforms them, he gets money. And if they outperform him, uh, I don't know if they get money, but he doesn't get anything out of it. And so he's going through this show, and he's answering the questions and going along. And he gets to the $250,000 question and answers it correctly and says, okay, I'm done now, right? Having brilliantly figured out that the, uh, the, the, the possibility of getting more um, had much more risk than the possibility of just taking the money and running, and he stops. Right? Very smart, smart, smart guy. But not terribly successful. How did he spend most of his life? As a bouncer in a bar. Right? Now, this is a man who's writing a entire tome on physics, working as a bouncer in a bar. Well, as it turns out, he didn't have a lot of uh, luck as a young person. He grew up in a family that was so poor, they all had like one set of clothes. They had to wash them while they were naked, you know, to, to go to the next door. And they had like no food to eat, and they're just really distressed. And here's this brilliant guy, and he didn't need to go to school, really, except every once in a while he'd go in and ace a test and go back home. Um, but managed to get through far enough to get scholarship to college, and starts college and was performing quite well, all A's, when all of a sudden he's called down to the financial aid office to say he doesn't have a scholarship for the next year. Well, why is this? Well, his mother didn't think that she had to file forms again. She didn't understand them. She didn't do anything about that. And so he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm eligible. My grades are fine. Everything is good. And, and the person he's talking to says, well, I'm sorry. We're, we're out of money now, so there's nothing we can do. And so he left. Right? Another time he manages to get to another school and has car trouble. And when he goes to try to say, look, I can hitchhike here because I'm miles and miles away if you give me a, a later class schedule. And the person looks at his earlier performance, dropping out of school uh, midway, and says, we obviously don't have an understanding for the commitment it takes to be in school. Right? Now, this is somebody with 190-plus uh, IQ, right? He leaves, never returns to school again. The thing is, he wasn't successful in getting the world to do what he needed them to do to support his brilliance. Right? So let's 
uh, look at another person, Robert Oppenheimer. This is all in the book, by the way, if you want to get a more fun reading of it. Robert Oppenheimer, you may remember, was the uh, head of the Manhattan Project that developed those great nuclear bombs that we then later dropped. Anyway, uh, he had his own interesting thing, another very smart man, not quite as smart as Mr. Lagan, but very smart indeed and had a nice wealthy family and a great uh, education. But when he was in college, he started getting distressed and a little depressed. And in fact, he got so stressed that he started thinking not always in the best way and decided one way out was to poison his tutor. <laughs> and so he did. <laughs> Fortunately for the tutor, who was also a very smart person, they later uh, won a Nobel Prize, um, was someone who uh, was able to detect this before actually dying. Um, so what happened then? I mean, let's, we have, you know, uh, Mr. Langer here who, you know, didn't uh, get a, a scholarship and so they bounced him and couldn't get his classes moved. So here's this guy who tries to murder someone. So they met with him and they complained a lot and they gave him probation. Probation, right, for, for attempted murder. And a few years later, as a young man, well, actually one of the youngest applicants I understand, he talked his way into being head of the Manhattan Project. Just who you want, somebody nice and stable and, and thoughtful. How did he do this? All right. Well, Gladwell is saying there's something that we really need to be aware of in terms of what it takes to put your intelligence to use. And some of that has to do with what they call emotional intelligence. Right? In this case, it has to do with your capacity to influence others to do the things that you want them to do for you. All right? If you can't get other people on board, you don't have nearly so much power and control, right? Because you're on the outside looking in. But when you're able to get people on board, you have a much better shot. Now, it's intriguing that the people who are best at this aren't always the people that we're the greatest fans of, I would think. Um, in the same book, he has a rather interesting study that he refers to on the notion of entitlement. How many of you like people who really have a strong sense of entitlement and show it all the time, right? <laughs> I hate that. You know, that, that's why I don't like about that American Idol folks. They seem to deserve it all the time. Makes me annoyed. Anyway, uh, in this study, they're looking at um, uh, school-aged children. And what they did is they had researchers camp out with families and just kind of hang around with the children and go through their days and see what happened. And, uh, and when they started looking at the results of the study, some very interesting things happened. First of all, there was a clear distinction between the behaviors and the, the, and the parenting styles of the wealthiest families compared to the parenting styles of the poorest families. Right? And that difference was this. In the wealthiest families, they never let the kids alone. Right? They, they, did, they run them up to soccer practice, football practice, baseball practice, tutoring, music lessons, dance lessons, all day long. And then when they came home, they made them read, you know, and then in the summer, they're taking them various places and sending them off to camp for weeks on end. They never let the kids alone. Not only that, when they were wanting to kind of work with kids to teach them, the things that they're teaching them often are how do you interact with adults to get them to listen to you? Right? Because what they are trying to inculcate in people is a sense that they're worth listening to, that they're worthy of respect, and that they should just expect if they walk into the room and, and get somebody's attention, that they'll keep that attention. Now that person will listen. Now contrast this with the poorest families. 
uh, oftentimes what you find is, first of all, you have adults who are working an awful lot and aren't really around to do all the supervision, don't have the resources to be driving people all over the place and buying uniforms and all those kind of things anyway, um, and also tend to have a different attitude about it, right? That kids should grow up and figure things out. Kids should hang out in the summers. I know I did. I thought it was great. People should just kind of be allowed to kind of sort things out with their peers, and if they find things that they really find interesting, that's great. Not necessary, but that's great, and, and let it go. And what tends to happen in these families when the, uh, when the adults don't specifically coach the children in how to address other um, adults and authority figures is those kids often don't expect to be respected by authorities. And oddly enough, neither do the parents. Right? You bring these parents into the parent-teacher conference, and the parents sit stone-faced, worried, troubled, thinking, you know, they, they need to be doing more to help my kid, but not being able to say much. Right? Contrasted with the other one, they're grilling these guys. Right? How come my kid didn't get a good grade? What were you doing to make sure that they uh, did their homework? How come uh, he didn't learn this material? This is going to be important for him later in life. A very different attitude about it. Right? When people find ways to influence others, they have a better chance at gathering people around and having success in life. Now the downside of this, again, we'd like to think of ourselves as having you know, reasonably amiable personalities too, right? I mean, it, uh, it's, it's all one thing to feel like you are able to get what you want and need from the world around you, but maybe something a little bit different to be involved in helping realize the worth and dignity of others, right? Because I would think that when we're looking at how we want to behave with others, we want to be thinking about how can I help someone else elicit their best? How can I engage with people so that their qualities and their awareness of who they are and, and the things that they can do become more real to them, right? It's not just about how can I get this person to give me what I want them to give me. Well, I find it a bit of a challenge to try to sort these things out, I have to say. And one of the reasons for that, again, is that it's hard to pick and choose the way we want to do things. The way we have come to be is often the way that we're a little bit stuck with, and moving off of that can be its own challenge. Um, you may remember, uh, anyone watch Pink Panther movies? I'm really showing myself off here, aren't I? <laughs> in one of the movies, there's, uh, uh, there's always Inspector Dreyfus, and I mean, uh, Commissioner Dreyfus and Inspector Clouseau, and, and Dreyfus is, is the boss. And generally, a reasonably rational person who really cares about good police work, uh, and he's coupled with uh, Inspector Clouseau, who's just, just wilder than wild and uh, just out of touch with reality, but somehow bumbles his way into success after success, and a lot of pratfalls that are really very funny. But that's uh, another sign. In one of these movies, the, uh, the commissioner has just returned from rehab, and he is still tightly wound. And every time he sees Clouseau, you can see him tense up. But in rehab, he learned to say something to himself over and over again, right? And that thing was, Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. Right? You can say this to yourself. They call it self-talk, right? And, and, and there's a way to you know, work it in. 
And through the course of the movie and his uh, overly intense interactions, you can see this mantra being said over and over and getting more and more intense until his teeth are just clenched and he's ready to jump out a window. Getting ourselves to be the kind of people we want is tough work. And it's not enough just to keep rewarding ourselves and saying we're doing all right. In fact, one of the things they, they found, uh, who was it? Is, uh, I saw this, uh, there's a psychologytoday.com thing. Um, but uh, it was, uh, have we, uh, do we need to rethink positive thinking? And uh, I, I don't see the researcher here just off the top of it. Uh, in any event, what uh, they were finding is if they looked at, they, they, they tested people for their self-esteem. Right? And they got the folks who really seemed to be pretty confident and all, and the other folks who were really kind of low down. Um, and then they had them do this self-talk exercise. Right? And what did they find? Well, the people who were relatively confident, eh, stayed pretty confident. Right? They weren't hearing anything they didn't know already. Um, besides that, it just, you know, how could it really change? They didn't, you know. For the people who weren't so confident, though, they got worse. Right? It made them feel terrible. Because not only, I mean, how lame could this be, right? Think about it. You know, you're already feeling low, and now you're having to pull yourself up? It's just terrible, all right? But how then do you go about it, right? What are the keys for you? Let's get back to that frustrating experience. What were the things that you were saying to yourself? Were you one of those people who was saying, you know, I'm all right. I don't know what's going on with them, right? But I'm okay, and I'll get through this. Or were you thinking, wow, what did I say to deserve this? You know? Or were you some kind of balance kind of thing? Well, let's see, you know, maybe this person's had a bad day, and I guess maybe I have too. You know, where are you? What are the things that you're saying to yourself? So you can figure out what your starting point might be. Because knowing how you work is the biggest key to being able to make a difference. And why is that? Because people who persevere remember Calvin Coolidge, seem to be people who, in the end, can perform better than people who don't. Uh, one of the other famous things in Malcolm Gladwell's book has to do with the 10,000 hours rule. Anyone heard of this? The idea is, for the people that are really great and masters at anything, chances are they spent about good 10,000 hours developing their mastery. That's a lot of time. A lot of time. But if you go back over famous musicians, Famous computer programmers, famous sports people, they spend a lot of hours working at their craft. Now, maybe they got some natural talents to begin with, but those talents come to fruition through a lot of hard work, too. Well, if we're working in our personalities, it probably makes sense that we think about logging some hours, too, right? Logging some hours. So the first challenge is figuring out, okay, how do I work so that I have some handle on the, the playing field that I'm working with? Second one is figuring out what's meaningful enough to me that I want to spend real time at it. Right? What's meaningful enough to me that I want to come at this again and again and put my 10,000 in? And third, what are the things that are going to motivate me and sustain me to do that? Not an easy question, too, because some people, with the self-talk you already saw isn't the best way to go, probably. Uh, some people really do respond to re appreciations and being requests made of them and things along those lines, but not everyone does. I happen to be somebody who responds a lot to criticism and pressure. And um, 
I, I do have an example of this. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were going to a uh, dinner party, actually with ethical culture members, so the pressure is really on, and we were bringing food. And I was giving, actually, this address the next day. And, uh, and so I was working on a Saturday afternoon. You know, I'm working away and working away, and uh, my wife knows me well. We've been together a long time. And so at some point in the afternoon, she delicately comes upstairs and says something to the effect of, you know, you're always late for these things, and you never quite figure out how much time you need, but you promise to, uh, you know, uh, make the fair following food dishes and to feed the dogs and to get yourself ready and all those other kind of things. You know? And then she leaves. So, of course, my response is immediately to fume, <laughs> quietly. <laughs> and then as soon as she's gone, to run downstairs and start getting to work. All right, so I chopped everything up, got the dogs fed, got them outside, got my shower, ironed my clothes, was all dressed before she was. <laughs> Which is a way of winning if you're competitive, not that I would own that. Um, but in this case, it was sweet, all right? <laughs> However, now I am destined to be saying this story over and over again, and now people realize that if they want me to do something, what are they going to do? They're going to criticize me a little bit and make a demand on me and get me in gear. All right? But I'm going to need this. Right? Without this, I could sit at that computer. I could go over to the 17 websites and have fun playing around on a game or something like that. That would be fine. I've got my 10,000 hours of solitaire down pat. <laughs> All right? But what about some of these other things that I had on my agenda as ways of self-improvement? What is it that sustains you? What is it that helps you carry on even when you rather rather do something else? So here's those five questions again. See if they sound any different. Describe something you'd like to accomplish that would make you feel really good about yourself. What would you have to think of yourself to accomplish that goal? What emotions and feelings would you have to change to achieve that goal? How will you have to act to make the goal come true? And ask yourself, what has kept me from thinking, feeling, and acting in these ways up to this point in my life? 